Writing your oncology case report is a huge undertaking, and it's easy to make silly mistakes that can derail your entire writing process. That's why you need my brand new masterclass, the three-step framework for a finished case report. In this free masterclass, you'll learn three of the biggest mistakes to avoid when writing your case report, the secrets to actually finishing your case report, no matter the patient case you've chosen, and my proven three-step framework for starting and finishing your very own oncology case report. Save your seat today at theoncopt.com slash framework. Again, that's theoncopt.com slash framework. Welcome to the Onco PT Podcast, where you'll learn from oncology experts, practitioners, and patients to help you on your journey to become a confident and competent Onco PT. Here's your host, Elise Decker. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Onco PT Podcast. Quick pause here because this is a really big moment for the podcast. Uh, When I first started this, I wrote down two names that I wanted to have on the podcast, and I've had one of those names already, and I have the second big name. Surely you can guess who it is by now. I have Nicole Stout on the podcast today. For those of you who don't know, um, Nicole is one of the names in oncology rehab. Anywhere you go that you've got some, you know, literature or presentation, she's there. And I finally got her on the podcast, y'all, and I am so thrilled. So, Nicole, welcome to the podcast. You are so funny, and that is so awesome. But thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And honestly, I'm excited just by your energy is making me even more excited to be here. So I'm so grateful. Thanks so much for the invitation. And uh, I'm excited for our discussion. Yay. We have a lot of stuff that we have been talking, kind of kicking back and forth over the last couple weeks. And, you know, we're just going to jump right into it, y'all. For those of you listening, we've got a ton of stuff we're going to really uh, dive into today and unpackage. And I think one of the big things on a lot of people's minds right now is, you know, we're still in COVID, depending on, you know, where you're at in the country. I'm in Texas, um, and unfortunately, we're in kind of the second, third wave of the crazy that's happening, Um, and it's definitely affecting, of course, our patients, but it's affecting us as providers, and One of the big things, Nicole, and I'm just going to basically stop talking unless you dive into this, is that we have really kind of gotten ourselves into a a pickle, for lack of better words, leading up to this that is really manifested with the onset of COVID and the continuation of COVID. So can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the struggles, obviously, everybody is facing right now is Um, continuing care and continuity of care with our patients. And, you know, unfortunately, I would love to say that survivorship care and supportive care and rehabilitation are at the forefront of everyone's mind in oncology. It's never been that way, right? We've always sort of been an underdog trying to claw our way into more clinical presence. And now here we are facing this pandemic when even the most basic and critical oncology care is being pushed by the wayside. So where are we, right? We have obviously fallen um, probably off of the radar for many healthcare providers in oncology. Um, And for our own purposes in rehabilitation, I think looking at how do we stay engaged with our patients is a challenge enough because rehab 
in general is so hands-on and so face-to-face. -face. We touch our patients. We put our hands on our patients. That is more than what most providers ever will do, touching their patient. So it's very powerful. And the absence of that is, you know, a huge, there's a huge dearth and a huge vacuum that's now been created. I think our patients are missing that. I think we as providers uh, are missing that. One of the challenges we are going to face moving forward is going to be around restoring our importance and relative, relative importance and our, our place in that cancer care continuum. I was on the phone just last week with um, a medical oncologist researcher from a relatively rural healthcare system, and she said, our cancer rehab practice has been decimated because the rehab service pulled our therapists to treat other patients. They don't see oncology rehab as critically important. And so we're not triaging our therapy staff to treat these patients. That is, that's a shame. Not, not only is that a shame, hang our heads and say, woe or us, but I think that really should become an impetus to drive change. We have got to look going forward at integrating our services more so into the oncology care delivery system so that we are not an outside entity that is sometimes consulted to see these cancer patients from time to time when our rehab administrators feel that it is, uh, that there's sufficient staffing or that they are of sufficient priority. So what, what does that mean going forward? I think coming through COVID, there are tremendous opportunities for us in oncology to better position ourselves as we come back to face-to-face in-person visits let's think about making the case and substantiating that through uh, patient reported outcomes and patient satisfaction that indeed this rehab service component of my care was a huge gap for me i really missed this during this time frame when i when i didn't have it through covid so I think there are some true opportunities for us. We've got to we've got to be able to look forward now and realize things are going to be very very different in the future for our population, the needs of our patients, their health, and so positioning ourselves optimally so that we're not this secondary referral afterthought in cancer care. It's always been a challenge for us in rehab because historically rehab is reflexive, right? We're reactive. Someone has a problem, they send them to rehab, we fix them. Someone has a surgery, an injury. Our place has been that post-operative, post-injury care. But again, the opportunity with oncology is to be proactive and to be prospective in our model. And I think this gives us, this experience through COVID gives us a place to step forward and to say, if we had rehab in a more proactive setting, perhaps it wouldn't have disintegrated right before our eyes um, when we had to prioritize our services in rehabilitation for patients. 
Um, the other thing that I think COVID has introduced that I, would, I hope continues to go forward is greater acceptance in telemedicine and telerehab. And that, again, a huge opportunity for us looking forward. It dovetails very nicely with some of the recent research that we've seen from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Andrea Cheville's publications mm -hmm. using telerehabilitation uh, in a uh, it, it was sort of a federated manner, if you will, right? You had um, specialists in oncology care who were the core of this tele-rehab program who were interfacing with general therapists out in the community to help to manage the needs of cancer patients. And, you know, and again, patients are more receptive to these telemedicine interfaces now. One of the things that we've implemented uh, at West Virginia University through this time period in our survivorship follow-up care clinic. And it's really come about very organically, but it's beautiful. The breast surgeon says, I have a follow-up call today with Mrs. So-and-so. And the social worker says, I'm available. And they're then in the same room to do a face-to-face -face with Mrs. So-and-so. Um, and the physical therapist jumps into the room at the same time. So the three of them do this collaborative call with the patient. And um, wow, what a great opportunity for us to think about um, new model of care, not just telemedicine or telerehab, but a, a really a, a multi-level interdisciplinary engagement with the patient. And the patients love it. It's like, here's my surgeon and my PT and my social worker all in the same place. They're all hearing the same thing. They're talking together and they're collaborative. Um, so I think we're, we're going to see, it's going to be different, right? Everybody keeps saying, when are we getting back to normal? That's, that, it's never going to happen. This is a new world that we're living in. And luckily, doors are opening for us to be able to implement models of care differently for individuals with cancer. So I'm hopeful. I recognize it's not, it's not going to get, we're not going to get there quickly. Um, I'm hopeful that we will really see movement towards uh, validation, justification, and then payment for these, these very different structures. I want to jump on something that you just said. So one of the issues that I have seen and I've heard from other uh, practitioners is that patients who are referred to PT a lot of times don't get in for PT, and it's because they don't understand or see the benefit of PT to them. And so, you know, one of the big barriers that we continue to face is that patients don't understand the benefits a lot of times because they're not addressed from or by like the oncologist or the surgeon. And, you know, we are in this field where there's a lot of, you know, patients are very apprehensive. You know, obviously this is a major life changing diagnosis and there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think they really grasp onto kind of what is, uh, gospel by their medical providers, which is good. We want them to trust and have that relationship. But I almost feel like if it's not discussed by the provider, then it's not, it's kind of, it's, it's not that important, um, which is obviously a huge problem for us and for our patients. I could not agree with you more. Uh, and I think that you hit a very important point, and that is the patient being empowered to find their way to rehabilitation. And that's unfortunately what we've had in the past is 
Patients have had to ask repeatedly. They've had to be severely disabled. So the more that we can empower patients through awareness of the benefits of PT, the benefit of rehab, exercise, even if it's home-based. So there, I feel like when we talk about patient awareness, I think of two streams. There are two streams that can help us build patient awareness around the benefits of our services. Number one is our physician colleagues, right? The more that they can not just tell the patient, you, I'm going to send you for, for rehab, but explain to them why, right? We've heard, we've heard the, to make a compelling argument with someone, you use the word because. When you just say to someone, I want you to do this, they say, okay, how's that going to help me? What, what's going to be the outcome? But when you say, I want you to go and see this provider because it's going to help to, uh, it's going to help you better manage the fatigue that you're having. It's going to help you get through your work day without pain. This person really knows how to provide you with interventions uh, or strategies to help you get through your day in a better way. Then there's an aha moment that the patient has. Now, what I've just described to you, though, takes a lot out of our oncology providers. It's time. It's knowledge that many of them just don't have. Um, and that's okay, right? That's what we're here for. Many times the oncologists understand that the rehab intervention or the exercise program is good. So, yep, let's get you to do it. But it's, it, it, it has to go a little bit further than that. There has to be a little bit more of a push we know from survey research that when the oncologist recommends exercise or recommends rehab, the patient is more inclined for uptake. So that, those are all good things in our favor. Um, and, and getting our oncology providers to engage is important. Here's the challenge though. They don't have the knowledge base that you and I do in exercise physiology. They don't have the comfort level in joint kinematics. Uh, in gait and balance assessment in, in neurocog. So we are the experts there. And sometimes the oncologists that I've worked with have said, if I start asking patients about all those problems, I don't have the answers for them. And so it's better to leave the genie in the bottle, essentially, right? Yeah. The minute they open the bottle and start to have the conversation, they need to have answers for all of that. And so what we've looked at, and, and this was a, a big part of the implementation piece that we've discussed after the publication of the ACSM exercise guidelines that just came out. We said, how do we get our physician colleagues to pull the trigger on getting patients to the exercise clinic? Um, and we've got to be able to find the, the easy button for the oncologist or the nurse, the advanced practice nurse that's in, you know, in the clinic, or the PA or the, the NP, and get them to say, here's where you're going to go. This is what they're going to do for you. This is why it is helpful. And have them pull the trigger on those referrals. So that's, that's one avenue of improving the patient awareness is getting the oncologist, more knowledgeable, bought in, and really facilitating and driving that. Um, even when we have all of that, right? Even when you have physicians bought in, you've got triggers built in the EHR, and you generate the referrals, we still know a large percentage of patients just don't show up. They don't go. And that's the problem is we're telling them they have to go. They have to go somewhere that's not in the same clinic that they're getting their 
um, you know, their cancer care. They have to go to another appointment. They have to take more time off of work. They have to show up somewhere. Where are they going to park? How much is it going to cost? What's my copay? So there are all of those barriers that we're creating because we are not co-located in cancer care. So when you look at some of the, um, the innovative cancer center models that are out there, and I'm not even talking about the big, you know, MD Andersons and Memorial Sloan Ketterings of the world. I'm talking about innovative models in small to mid-sized cancer centers. And I'll give you a great example. Huntsman Cancer Institute at the University of Utah. Um, they have developed a clinically integrated PT model. They have a physical therapist in the cancer center that sees the patient. Now, this started as a part of a research protocol, but what became apparent was the value that that physical therapist brought in assessing patients and sometimes just talking to patients about the safety profile, the risks, um, the challenges, and, and how to start exercising or moving more. So the minute that we trigger a referral and we expect our patient to make another appointment and go somewhere, we automatically will lose a percentage of them. So the clinically integrated models, this is also where telerehabilitation can be incredibly helpful. Go to the patient's house, right? See mm -hmm. them on um, their, an iPad, talk to them on their telephone so that they don't have to leave their home. Um, we're seeing some really novel applications being developed in um, video correspondence with patients, helping us look at gait, um, doing six-minute walk tests using a mobile phone. So there are some ways that we can clinically assess our patients using remote strategies like telemedicine, but really having the therapist there in the cancer center, we see, you can see the patient in tandem whenever they come in to see the medical oncologist, whenever they come in for a chemo infusion, a follow-up visit, you are there, the, the, the appointment is scheduled in tandem. So there's not another appointment, another parking lot, <laughs> you know, another place that they have to go and find and figure out, is there anywhere I can get lunch if I'm going to be there? Those are the things that really trouble our patients and add burden. So we've got to be able to take that burden away. Um, so those are, and that, you know, again, to me, I think is, is, it, 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 uh, it is opening the door for patients to see the benefit of rehabilitation. When the PT can come into the room and sit down and talk with them and say, you know, your doctor just talked to you about this lymph node dissection procedure. Let's talk about what that means. You know, do you, the lymphatic system, do you understand what that is? It's like the plumbing system of your body. And if we take out some of your lymphatics, there may be a risk for a backup. So we're going to work with you and monitor to make sure that you don't develop swelling. And then the mm -hmm. patient says, okay, I, I get it. Right. To be able to have that sit down discussion, you know, you and I as clinical providers, we see we will see thousands of patients in our lifetime. We will see thousands of individuals going through cancer treatments. They, heaven willing, see one of us. Right. right? They go through this once. And so they don't know what the scar should look like or how it should feel or if they should have pain when they move their when they sit for a long time or if they move their arm in a certain way. Should they be short of breath after they walk up and down stairs? So those things sometimes I feel as though the rehab provider 
seeing patients at these interval follow-up visits in tandem while they're getting their treatments, it almost helps our patient. First of all, we give them license to do and to move. It's okay. Mm -hmm. You're not fragile. You are not going to break. And here's, here's some strategies. But it also is, um, uh, it, it's very reassuring to the patient to hear from someone like a physical therapist okay, you have some stiffness in your shoulder or in your neck, the scar feels really tight. Here are some things we can do to help that and to sit with them and take them through. Boy, with head and sometimes some chin tucks with an individual after a head and neck, neck dissection procedure, just two or three repetitions teaching them how to correctly do a chin tuck and breathe, you can change their life in, in, in 10 minute engagement. But the challenge is getting to that place, like I said, where we are co-located. That is, I think that was the crux of the success of the prospective surveillance model. That model, that research that we did, that decade-long prospective study and cohort study that we ran would not have been as successful if that, if the physical therapist was not there in the cancer center. That's why the model was as effective uh, as it was. And as I said, what happens then is, so maybe it's a part of a research study or maybe it's the breast cancer team that has you there, but then um, the, uh, the GI oncologist says, why don't I have one of you for my people? Mm -hmm. And the thoracic surgeon says, I think I need you for my people. When they start to see the value that you bring. Um, so the idea of just, you know, refer patients to PT, that's interesting, um, but, like you mentioned, Elise, if we can make the patient very aware and understand our benefit, the best person to show that benefit is us, right? To sitting there talking to them, having the conversation, rather than just giving them this consult piece of paper and telling them they've got to schedule an appointment, you know, three blocks away at XYZ Therapy Center, right? So I think the big mind shift here is going from this idea of refer to PT that, you know, we, a lot of us have been so used to for a long, long time. And I think, you know, as a professional organization, we have done a better job of being like, okay, go get PT, refer to PT, refer to PT. But I, it's almost like we have to change from being a referral to, you know, physically being located, mm -hmm. mentally being associated with the oncology care, like care team being a part of the cancer care team and not just an accessory referral for that patient. Absolutely. And um, when you look at how cancer care plans are developed, this is how a cancer care team operates. They do this right now. They don't include rehabilitation right now. Most of them mm -hmm. but they do this right now. So let's take, for example, a woman who has breast cancer. Um, there's a diagnosis made, there is a tumor board set up, and at that tumor board meeting, everybody sits around at a table and they look at the pathology slides, they look at the imaging scans, they talk about the past medical history, and they develop a treatment plan based on you know, the pathology, the imaging, um, the staging that they come up with, and the potential prognosis. So here are some other things they do. They say things like this. Well, this patient is going to, she has her two positive tumor, she's going to get her septin, and we're going to give her adriamycin. So knowing that those two drugs are highly cardiotoxic, before we start treatment, 
we are going to do an echo so that we know what her baseline cardiac output is. Okay, we are going to do a DEXA scan at baseline before she starts treatment because we know that she's going to have hormonal agents. Let's say she's 65, she's going to have an aromatase inhibitor and she's going to have loss of bone density. Let's take a prostate cancer, an individual with prostate cancer. Um, that individual, we're going to put them on androgen deprivation therapy. We go through the tumor board, we look at the scans, we look at the past medical history, and we say things like, we're going to give him androgen deprivation. We need to do a DEXA scan at baseline because we know he's going to lose bone density. We need to look at lean mass at baseline because we know he's at risk for losing lean mass. Yes. So we do a lot of proactive um, testing and assessment of patients so that we understand their baseline because we know the side effects of treatment are going to cause decline. And we monitor those things over time. We repeat the echo, we repeat the DEXA scan, we do blood work repeatedly, obviously to understand if it's safe to give the patient additional chemotherapy. Why are we not a part of that team from the beginning to look at physical performance status, balance? If I know my patient's going to get a platinum-based drug, that's 100% of my lung cancer population right there. Right, right. Um, being able to assess at baseline where those individuals are with regard to performance, pulmonary function, balance, those things are critical because if they decline, they will decline during treatment. How severely they decline can have a very negative impact on their response, their ability to tolerate their chemotherapy, their response to treatments. Um, it can lead to obviously falls, um, hospitalization. So the downstream of what we do um, by enacting our, by infusing our services proactively, the downstream can be changed drastically. If, no, if for no other reason, it can help us identify when the impairment begins, right? So that gentleman that we did the DEXA scan with, we see, you know, his Z-score drops, you know, by whatever standard to standard deviations, and now we put him on specific medications. Why are we not doing the same thing with function? Mm -hmm. We see that the patient now has um, gate deviations, they're reporting that they trip and fall, and we see their, um, their, their Fullerton balance score has dropped by X number of points. Refer them for rehabilitation, get them into rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And if we were a part of that team following prospectively, we would see that, we'd identify it at the earliest change point. So what we're asking, what we bring to the table, the, the model of care is not unusual. This is what we do. This is how we manage cancer care. It just hasn't had the rehabilitation as a part of this. So we're seeing movement towards nutrition services being integrated at the point of diagnosis, especially for our patients who go through head and neck cancer treatments, lung cancer treatments, because we know high risk of cachexia. They be, many of them become anorexic. And so we're introducing nutrition services and dietitian uh, services or dietetics early on and prospectively. We have got to be able to bring the same service and the same strategies to the table for rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot, not just in this episode, but in general about how much we bring to the table for cancer care. I think a big question on people's minds is, how do we get to the table? 
And at this point, it's not even a, I'm not even asking how do we get invited to the table. I'm asking how do we make a chair for ourselves to sit at the table in these instances? <laughs> I'm not asking to be invited anymore. I am being there, but how? Well, so a couple of things, right? The fact that we bring so much to the table is both good and bad, right? Because what then happens is for every impairment, and you know, I struggle to find an impairment that a patient will experience that cannot benefit from rehab. So your oncologists say, well, what the heck? Should everybody just get rehabilitation? And my response to that is, show me the person going through treatment for cancer that doesn't need it right? Let's, let's right. go backwards here, right? Let's think about it that way. Show me the patient who doesn't have clinically significant fatigue. Maybe that's about 20, 25% of individuals. Mm -hmm. But remember that there's this accumulated aggregate burden that builds up over time. So even if they don't have a problem today, it's not a matter of if they're going to have it, but when, and mm -hmm. what will it be, and how severe will it be? So, you know, I think it's both good and bad that we have such a broad scope of practice, and it comes down to us as rehab providers being able to well articulate the value that we bring. So this is why being at the table is so important. Um, so how do we get there? Um, pull up a chair, right? <laughs> Attend. You have to show up. I think that is one of the most important things. We have to show up. We have to have a rehab provider at that tumor board meeting. Mm -hmm. um, ask a question. They say the patient has a history of um, diabetes. They have a history of hypertension. They rattle off the whole comorbidities. And then they say um, physical performance, they're a Karnofsky 80. Um, and maybe you ask the question, um, have, do they have neuropathies because they have a long-standing history of diabetes? Um, should we do sensory testing or balance testing with them because of long-standing diabetes? And if you ask that question, sometimes you're going to get a blank stare from the oncology fellow or the oncologist who did that intake because they didn't ask that question. Right? We look at things very differently. We ask very different questions. So when we're asking about physical performance with the individual, how did they test physical performance? And unfortunately, many times our oncologists, gosh, I heard, um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, um, a fantastic um, podcast by uh, someone who's a little bit of a maverick in oncology. Um, it's called Plenary Session. Vinay Prasad is a... Um, He's a practicing medical oncologist, and he's out in um, San Diego. And you know, he he really gets at the core of issues and 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 likes to flip them upside down. So he's interviewing someone who's a very prominent um, lung cancer uh, specialist, and he says, you know, well, when you're doing this is the lung cancer specialist. He says, when you're doing your assessment of the patient, you know, you just kind of ask them to stand up and get up on the treatment table, and you do your gut check to understand what you think their physical performance status is. And I, I like, I was driving and I almost like threw up in my mouth going, wait a minute, what did you just say? But this is how, this is, this is historically how many of our oncology providers have learned to assess physical performance. Can the person stand up unassisted 
okay, great. So they look like a nine or they look like a 90 on Karnofsky um, or, you know, an ECOG four, or, or, you know, they're, they're very morbid, uh, you know, morbidly obese. They have a number of um, complications. We're not going to put them through treatment. You know, they're an ECOG three or four, you know, those are places where we should be looking to bring our skills in to create, to give more granular insight, valid insight on someone's physical performance and to help our colleagues recognize if you address their physical performance, if they are a Karnofsky 70, you know, Karnofsky is the zero to 100, 100's mm -hmm. optimal, the best, and, you know, zero is mostly nearly dead. Dead. Yeah. Um, and I think ECOG actually is, I think a five on the, ECOG is the opposite, zeros and right. five. I think five actually is dead. Five is ECOG. dead on ECOG, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, hopefully you're... Your 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 um your medical oncology colleagues can recognize and delineate between fours and fives, but um I'm joking there, but um I, I do think that we the, the more that we can do to show that we can provide value to them uh, in better delineating performance status, but not only that, improving it. So getting to the table, um, show up at a tumor board meeting. Your mm -hmm. cancer center has tumor board meetings. Get there. Take the time out of your schedule. Sometimes you're going to have to advocate for that time with the supervisor. Mm -hmm. And again, this is where it becomes tricky. If we are if we are not prioritizing oncology, is your supervisor going to say, sure, take an hour out of your schedule every week to go to the breast cancer tumor board or the lung cancer tumor board? Because mm -hmm. in larger hospitals and in cancer centers, they will have one for each disease team. Yes. Um, and so, you know, but, but get there. If you want to build a program, if you want to integrate your services, that's probably one of the most important places to start. Get to know your providers, the surgeons, the radiation oncologists, the medical oncologists. You know, don't just wave your hand and say, oh yeah, you can just send us your patients. Get into clinic with them. Go on rounds with them. Mm -hmm. See the patients with them because chances are if you've been seeing oncology patients, you're going to walk in a room with them and probably see a patient that you know. And then, boy, is that patient going to be delighted and will that oncologist be delighted to hear about all the wonderful things you've done. So let me tell you about some, um, some drivers that are out there right now that are going to force us to get to the table. Um, and really what we've seen in, uh, in the last year or so are some big changes around um, the standards for accreditation in cancer centers. We've also seen some emergence of guidelines and prominence of rehabilitation in guidelines that historically had been very medically treatment focused. So let me talk about those two things. First of all, the, the standards. Um, first of all, the, um, the Commission on Cancer is the American College of Surgeons has a, um, a, a body called the Commission on Cancer, and they accredit cancer centers all over the United States. In fact, I think upwards of 95% of cancer centers in the U.S. are accredited by the Commission on Cancer. Mm -hmm. So they're a big gorilla. But in order to be accredited, you have to meet various standards, and they, you have to demonstrate that you meet these standards in a review, I think it's every five years. You have to provide yearly reports as to how you are meeting the standards. So the good news for us is that in 2020, the new Commission on Cancer Standards came forward and rehabilitation services is now a standard criteria. Huge, yes. huge for us. Fantastic. Because, 
Yeah, it really is fantastic. In the past, the um, rehabilitation was a criteria. So in order to become accredited, you had to show that you had access to rehab services. What did that mean? It was very vaguely defined. Mm-hmm. You could say that you had uh, a rehab provider that you send people to when they have lymphedema, and that would have met the criteria. But now we've been elevated as a standard. And if you have an opportunity to look at the cancer standard, it specifically states um, that you should have a certain rehabilitation provider, rehabilitation services that are available. It defines rehabilitation much more broadly. It isn't, we have to remember this too. It is not just physical therapy that we're talking about. Right. This right. is speech and language pathology. This is cognitive. This is behavioral, right? So this is rehab with a capital R. Um, but the, the standard does suggest that rehabilitation services should be integrated into cancer care from the point of diagnosis mm-hmm. with repeated mm-hmm. ongoing interval assessments so that we can identify the earliest issues that impact negatively impact function and manage them. So that is that now being a standard is going to change the way your hospital system, your cancer center view rehab services. They, you're not just going to fight for a seat at the table. They're going to say, we have a seat and we need someone in this Mm -hmm. seat to help us meet this standard. So we on our end need to be prepared for that. We need to have a workforce that is educated in oncology. We don't have that ubiquitously. I would say most rehabilitation providers, not just PT, most rehab providers do not get sufficient exposure to oncology in their undergrad or their their, their PT curriculum. Should they? Great question. And how much should they? Um, And so what we've seen is the development of residency programs, specialty education tracks, and specialization. But we have to recognize our workforce in oncology is going to have to grow substantially to meet this need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is, it is a highly specialized population. These patients are medically complex. There's multi-system involvement. Um, you know, the treatment trajectory is, is extended over a long period of time. And treatments change and innovations occur and new and innovative immunological therapies and chemotherapies have different side effects. So knowing and understanding cancer, pathology, pathophysiology, treatment side effects, that's going to be critical. And we, we need the workforce to step up to be able to manage that. So that Commission on Cancer standard is going to change things. We also are going to need administrators in our hospital systems in rehab services to be more open and more accepting of this as a priority service, because now it is. Because if your cancer institute can't demonstrate that they meet this standard, they can get, they get points taken away from them. They can lose their accreditation. Mm-hmm. That's huge. If you're yes. not accredited, you can't get grants from certain institutes. You know, you, there's funding streams that you may lose. You don't qualify for certain quality incentive programs. So being accredited is a big deal. So this is a huge opportunity for us uh, in, in rehabilitation and in physical therapy. Um, so that that's going to that's going to be a forcing function in bringing us to the table, um, but we've got to be open and ready for it. The other piece of that that I mentioned are guidelines, uh, and recently I shouldn't even say that recently, but over the course of probably the last eight to ten years, we've seen an evolution in 
guideline concordant care around oncology. It used to be that guidelines were published and developed really centralized around disease treatment and medical management. Mm -hmm. um, what's the chemotherapy regimen, the dose, et cetera? Um, what are the radiation tangents, the dose, et cetera? So those things highly standardized in guidelines. Um, but what we've seen is an evolution. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the NCCN, they are a huge gorilla when it comes to the development of guidelines. So NCCN has guidelines for um, specific to different disease types, mm -hmm. but they also have a core set of guidelines uh, for impairments, symptoms, side effects. So there's an NCCN guideline for fatigue. There's an NCCN guideline for, um, you know, for uh, hematological patients, uh, for example, different cancer types, different symptoms and side effects. Um, within these guidelines, you will find and identify the rehabilitation services are everywhere within the guidelines. I don't think that we in rehab services, I don't think that we look to and hold those guidelines out enough in our favor. I don't think we're as familiar with them as we need to be because that's a trigger to get us to the table. So the NCCN guideline recognizes clinically significant fatigue as greater than or equal to four out of 10 on a visual analog scale. And if a patient self-reports fatigue at that level, so clinically meaningful, they can't get through their day, it's limiting them with their activities of daily living, that individual should be referred uh, for, for fatigue management. And ideally, fatigue management is through exercise and rehabilitation services. So that's in the NCCN guideline. Okay, if we're providing guideline concordant care to individuals going through cancer treatment, we should be triggering that 100% of the time when someone reports four or more out of 10 fatigue. Mm -hmm. Pain, there are pain guidelines by the NCCN that identify clinically significant levels of pain. And they identify specific pain syndromes like post-neck dissection pain syndrome, post-mastectomy pain syndrome, with very, very specifically identified thresholds for which we should be referring patients for rehab services. They are spelled out in these guidelines. The NCCN's most recent survivorship guideline is probably one of the strongest in favor uh, of, of providing rehabilitation services and other supportive care services more proactively. They identify thresholds for referral for lymphedema, for pain, for sexual dysfunction, hormonal symptoms. I mean, there is an entire list of impairment. And within each of those, referral thresholds are identified, send the individual for rehabilitation services, rehabilitation consult, and then take a step further where they've looked at the evidence and have said, for post-mastectomy pain syndrome, these are the evidence-based interventions that have been identified, the rehabilitation interventions that have been identified. So what more could we ask for, right? right. Our, our oncologists who write the NCCN guidelines are reviewing the evidence for rehabilitation. And they're saying, yes, there's sufficient evidence. Yes, it's of a sufficient level of quality to be included in a guideline. That guideline is then published through a huge systematic review consensus process by the NCCN and put forward as, you know, obviously guidelines are there as guidance. Um, you know, they helped us to standardize care. They helped to promote quality of care. So these, I don't think we leverage these guidelines enough in rehab. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're aware enough 
um, of the guidelines. And um, so I'm happy to say that I've been obviously very passionate about this guideline issue um, because these are guidelines that were written by the oncology community that we need to leverage on our behalf. Mm -hmm. So over the last year, I've been working with, I've uh, been co-leading a technical work group of the World Health Organization. Um, Dr. Julie Silver and I, um, Dr. Silver's a physiatrist, cancer rehabilitation. Um, myself, uh, Daniel Santamina, who is an exercise physiologist at University of Toronto, phenomenal um, exercise oncology researcher. Um, Dr. Kathy Lyons, an occupational therapist mm -hmm. who's at Dartmouth. Uh, and Karen Robb, Dr. Karen Robb, who is a physio um, who was with Healthy People London. Um, so we had a nice interdisciplinary, um, very um, international group. Our technical work group reviewed guidelines worldwide over the last 10 years to identify where was rehabilitation embedded in guidelines, where are the points for referral, what types of assessments have been identified, and what types of interventions. Um, we have that, we've gone through um, peer review. It's in a second review right now with a really important journal. Um, and I'm hopeful, yeah, really, and I'm kind of hopeful that maybe by the time this- Right, it'll happens, coincide a little bit. Yes. Maybe, yes. we may be able to share um, that. So what, what do guidelines do? They synthesize the existing evidence and tell us what is the highest level of evidence for an intervention. And that's, that's so important for us. Um, you know, in rehab, we have a lot of, we don't have big, um, you know, multi-site clinical trials. We don't have an infrastructure mm -hmm. set up for that. Um, I believe that someday we could, especially in oncology. If there's a place we can do big multi-site clinical trials that are about function, I think we can do it in oncology. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of our studies are smaller in scale. They're, you know, they're, the, the effect sizes, perhaps, that we see in systematic reviews are, are okay because you'll see there's a lot of heterogeneity in the studies that are done. Um, we don't do a good job of aligning in reporting our outcomes and our interventions. We don't do a good job of reporting adherence. Mm -hmm. um, we'll publish the study protocol. This is what we did. But how much of that was the individual able to adhere to and then right. looking at the functional outcomes? So... Um, you know, there, there's there, there's a a lot that we need uh, that we need to do, but the guidelines really, I think we we don't look enough to the current guidelines, which really are the hook to get us to that seat at the table. So I think those are two areas where when we talk about getting the seat at the table, show up, be the professional that you are, and ask the questions that you know are important to the function of that individual. Know the guidelines, because if you sit at that table and you say, well, if Mrs. So-and-so reported fatigue at this level and she has, you know, these other symptoms, NCCN guidelines suggests, or the American Cancer Society fatigue guidelines suggests mm -hmm. um, that she should be referred to rehab. And that changes the way people look at you at that table and they say, hey, this person knows what they're talking about. And um, hey, this is someone that knows what our patients need. And hey, this is someone we can probably trust um, because that's another big issue. When a physician has to refer a medically complex patient going through cancer treatments to someone that they don't know, there's, there's, mm -hmm. a, trust, there's a trust gap there. And I, that has nothing to do with anybody personally. It has nothing to do. It's just a, it's a, it, it's a gap. Right. It's a gap. I've right. had my oncologist say, you know, rehab's like this black box. 
I send them out there, you put them in the box, you shake them up and they come back and they're good, but I don't know what you did in the box, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the, like the more that that physician knows you, knows what your program's about, you know, the better I think you're going to be able to, um, to integrate and get at that table. Um, I'll add one other way that I think is really emerging for us to get at that table. So you may be familiar with the concept of navigation in oncology. Mm -hmm. um, navigators are, they have become rather ubiquitous across cancer centers. What does a navigator do? They are there to help to coordinate all of the appointments and the care delivery for the patient because cancer care is very complex. Mm -hmm. Many different providers, lots of different appointments, blood work, imaging, um, staging process, registration for clinical trials. So supportive care services, family needs, psychosocial, I mean, there's just there's so many things. So the navigators are there to help to coordinate all of these different efforts and help to streamline and manage the plan of care. Um, and so navigation is an optimal place for us to integrate our services, to get at the table, either through making friends with and getting to know the navigators. If the navigators know you and they know what you can do for the patients and they know how to get those individuals in interface with you, that's going to benefit you, right? So having the navigators know, understand how do you assess function, how do you assess change in function, how do I, how do I get them to the physical therapist to connect? But there's an even bigger role for us to play, I think, in navigation, and that is why could the rehab provider not be the navigator, right? So navigation roles have historically been held by nurses. Um, they also, we also see a lot of social workers play the role of navigators. Um, dietitians can be navigators as well. And so um, what we have seen, there are um, some select programs that have developed rehabilitation navigators. Mm -hmm. um, so I had an opportunity to co-author a paper with some folks from Lee Health in Florida, Fort Myers, uh, and they have a phenomenal workflow that incorporates a rehab navigator. So that's a, that's a physical therapist. She's over 20 years experience physical therapy in oncology who serves as a navigator, but she does, she handles the functional assessment piece for the navigation team. She handles mm -hmm. the pain management, the pain uh, issues that patients face. So it's almost as though that navigator serves a triage role, right? Mm -hmm. They assess the patient, they say, okay, you need psychological counseling, you need cognitive and behavioral services, you need physical therapy. That's exactly what that navigator does. So a rehab navigator is really a phenomenal way to get ourselves there at the table because navigation is a recognized process and workflow that's used in, like I said, almost ubiquitously in oncology clinics. Um, so putting a rehab provider into that role makes perfect sense mm -hmm. um, on a navigation team to be able to look at and elucidate around some of, elucidate some of these functional issues, triage the individual to the right place, um, so that we can remediate the impairments, the functional impairments as they, as they occur. You know, and I think one of the big things I'm, I'm hearing kind of come up again and again is really inserting yourself into where the decisions are being made and then leverage, excuse me, leveraging, you know, of course the experience, but for some of our newer clinicians, you know, the knowledge you do have from experience with working with these patients and the enthusiasm is where we're really going to start, you know, helping to 
make the decisions and, you know, again, like I said earlier, not just get the referral to PT, but to really be an integral part of the oncology care team. And one of the things that I'm, I'm reminded of, um, repeatedly during this conversation is I love the model that, um, Scott Capoza and the, the Yale Smilo, uh, cancer survivorship program where it's, you know, for them, for, Listeners who haven't listened, um, this was a conversation I had earlier this summer with Scott, but really getting to talk about, you know, in the survivorship phase, they have, the patient will have a meeting with social work, with the physician's assistant, um, uh, the registered dietitian, and then with Scott, the PT. And that's not something we have to save for the survivorship phase. That's something we can be a part of at diagnosis. And I think that's where, you know, inserting ourselves again in the appropriate spots throughout the cancer care continuum and leveraging that, that we have is really going to be where we make those differences and make the systematic change that our patients so desperately need. Yeah, at least that's a great way to describe it. It is a systematic change that has to happen. Um, and let, let me just speak to that for a quick second because I, I do uh, agree with you. The program that they have at Yale is, is phenomenal and Scott is a real leader in this area. Um, the idea that this team of people, right, these different supportive care providers assesses the patient it, it and you know helps them sort of transition to survivorship. That's important, but you're right. Let's back that up to the point of diagnosis. Right. And here's another driver as to why that that's exactly what we're going to see happen. So I mentioned the Commission on Cancer earlier. I mentioned the rehabilitation standard. Right. That's standard 4.8. Uh, if you take a look at standard 4.6, 4.6 is a new standard for survivorship care teams. And the survivorship care team is defined exactly as you have just laid it out. There is a core, uh, there's a core of individuals who come together from different disciplines in supportive care. And the COC standard gives you a list of who they suggest should be on that survivorship care team. Physical therapy is listed as one of those recommended slots on the survivorship care team. And those individuals should come together and assess the patient and determine the supportive care services that are going to be offered for patients throughout the continuum of care. And those can be things like an exercise program, nutritional counseling, um, support groups. You know, there's a whole transportation services, financial counseling. There's a whole cadre of services that they suggest. So we're going to see a systemic, a systematic and systemic change, just as you have identified as needed, because of another criteria, another standard that's been put forward by the COC. This is, again, an ideal place for us to infuse ourselves and inject our services. It works very nicely in tandem with the new rehabilitation standard. So these two things sort of right in step from the point of diagnosis. So this was exactly the model that we were able to leverage in prospective surveillance. In our cancer center, this was back in 2002, 2004, uh, when we rolled out these trials, that the hospital system that I was at at the time in the Department of Defense, it was the old National Naval Medical Center, mm -hmm. Bethesda, um, in their cancer center, we used to do what was called multidisciplinary rounds. Newly diagnosed patients, uh, and they would come in and they would meet the surgeon, the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, 
the physical therapist, the social worker, um, they would have a dietetics consult if that was indicated. Um, and they would meet all of us in one morning. They'd sort of do a round robin, um, moving in between these, they would do sort of a round robin, moving in between these individuals. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Everyone would see them and assess them. And then we'd all come together in the tumor board meeting and provide our perspective on the individual and what their needs might be going through treatment. So that's where I would have the opportunity to say, if this individual is going to have um, carboplatinum and, um, you know, it, it, you know, a, a, and a taxane-based regimen, they're really going to be at risk for neuropathy. I'm going to want to monitor for them, them for that. This is where I could say this patient has a history of falls and is going to have those treatments. Mm -hmm. And so we've really got to pay attention and we've got to be monitoring prospectively. Um, this is where the social worker could say, um, are you aware that this individual is in an abusive relationship or a quasi-abusive has a, an ex-husband who is, you know, is abusive and, you know, we need to provide services. So it really allows us to help the human being that has to walk the journey of cancer care because we can give the greatest medical care um, and, and we can do the best clinical trials and we can have great bench research. But if we don't help that human being as they go through the journey, you know, the, the outcomes suffer and the patient, not just the patient suffers, the outcomes suffer and survival suffers for that. Yes. So the idea of this survivorship care team that comes together at the point of diagnosis and follows that individual prospectively. When they're done with cancer treatment, then we say, here are the, th right, the, survive, the old survivorship mm -hmm. care plan. Here are the things you experienced. Here were the problems that you had. These, this is what we did to mitigate them. If you experience these issues as you go forward, this is what we can do to provide services. These are the things you should seek out. So it really is a much more comprehensive, much more holistic approach from the point of diagnosis, moving through that continuum of care with them. So I agree with you. I think the idea of these supportive care teams or survivorship care teams um, is a, it, I think it's an optimal way to deliver care. Um, now, the other thing that I'll inject into that is, um, so the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has been running this pilot program called the Oncology Care Model, OCM, mm -hmm. um, since 2016. And it's, uh, a, it's designed to be a five-year program uh, where they were incentivizing uh, comprehensive um, supportive care services around the episode of care for chemotherapy. So what services could we package in a, in a bundled payment uh, that we could provide care to the patient, um, provide, provide medical care, and provide supportive care? So what we have seen so far, the halfway reports came forward and were published um, in, in 2017 and 2018. There were some preliminary reports. Um, Ron Klein from the uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services was a lead author on these, reporting some of the preliminary findings. Mm -hmm. Co-location of services was critical, and not only to patient satisfaction, to patient tolerance to chemotherapy, and to outcomes. Mm -hmm. So the co-location, not having to have that additional appointment, you know, that additional service visit somewhere else, co-location of services was critical, setting those things up in tandem. Mm -hmm. And having supportive care services there on site while the patient was there um, also contributed to higher patient satisfaction. 
and the costs of care that they identified were constrained when those supportive care services were offered. So we're seeing the opportunity here for us to suggest that rehab services, and this is a great avenue for future research for those of you who are out there going, how can I, how, what type of research questions are there? There's a right. lot. But the health services line of research, I think, is a place for us really to be able to show that value. Um, because we can say things like, you know, a six-week exercise program is, you know, shows us good cardio-respiratory cardio response. Um, a balance training and strengthening training program, um, you know, reduces the, um, the fall risk while somebody's going through that, that program. But what happens to that individual in six months or in a year? Mm -hmm. um, that's important. But the other thing that's important is how does our service intervention impact their cancer care? If we give them a prehab exercise program, um, do they tolerate chemotherapy better? Do their blood counts recover to a higher degree? Do they experience less infections during chemotherapy? Um, you know, do they have less severe um, high toxicity side effects mm -hmm. during chemotherapy? So those are the kinds of things that we could be looking at um, with a health services research agenda. So, <laughs> well, and, and so just to, to finish that, that sort of ties it back to building a survivorship care team, if you are able to do that, think about the metrics that you can track to show improvements in quality, outcomes, survival, cost, service utilization. So that survivorship care team that could come together at the point of diagnosis, track that prospectively to identify how you impact the trajectory of cancer care. Holy cow. That was so much good stuff. <laughs> we could talk for days, I think. No, oh my gosh. We have truly just scratched the surface. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of listeners out there who are kind of in this situation of, unfortunately, um, I was actually uh, just on social media the other day and I had a uh, colleague from PT school who made the comment that, you know, it's, you know, it's 2020 and, you know, a few years ago when they took the NPTE, um, which is coincidentally, I think, happening around this time, give or take. Yeah, I think um, it was like yesterday or today. Yeah, something. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't think I'd be here without a job. You know, my facility, like, completely closed down, you know, closed up shop and everything. And it's, it's mind-boggling that what we have been operating under, you know, has, it's not that it's necessarily bad how we've been doing things, but it's not great. And I think we have a real opportunity, again, piggybacking off what she said earlier, we have such an opportunity with the um, kind of post COVID reality that we're moving into, because again, I'm in agreement, this normal like pre-COVID that we have in our minds, I don't think we're going to see that again. And I think it's going to look a lot of, you know, look very differently for a lot of different things. But we have such an opportunity now, starting now, even while, you know, this is still very much our reality, but moving forward and how we can really change things for the better for our patients. And I think that is really cool. 
Yeah, and you know, I, I agree with you, and I will add to that. We're almost, there's sort of this perfect storm happening right now, and not to insinuate that COVID is a good thing, but I think there will be good things that come out of yes. it, yeah. the way that it's forcing us to change cancer care. The, the other thing that's happening right now is that, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, 15 years ago, when I used to talk about rehabilitation and cancer, I would get shocked looks like, you can't touch those patients. They're fragile. They're not well. Um, you know, they might fracture their hip, um, you know, or they should rest. They're very sick. And we have really evolved to a place of knowing and understanding that exercise and rehabilitation services are extremely beneficial mm -hmm. to mitigate many of the problems that patients face. So I would say we're at this place where rehab has a good evidence base. Right, we have a rehab again, capital R. So that's cognitive, that's physical, that's you know the exercise interventions. We have, we've got a really good evidence base. We have um, a number of studies that have shown us um, efficacy in implementing implementing that those interventions into care. So models of care that have good efficacy. And, you know, so we're not in this foreign environment anymore of going, well, you know, should the patient exercise? It's more of how and when and who. Right. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a huge opportunity and we've come a long way. Um, so I, I think that, that's, a, you know, that, that's a positive in all of this. Um, where I think we're going to go is, the, like I said, the idea of tele-rehabilitation is not going to be so foreign or frightful or, um, you know, so nebulous um, to patients in the future. So we're going to be able to extend ourselves even further. The idea of having a physical therapist on the cancer care service team is not going to be so foreign in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, part of that is our profession has to sort of get past this mindset about cancer mm -hmm. that comes with education. And as I said, educating our workforce is so critical. I have people in our profession who say, well, you know, I don't really see people who have cancer. And I kind of smile and I say, you know what? They see you every day. Mm -hmm. I say this all the time. They see you every day. They're in your clinic. They have a history of cancer 10 years ago. Is that important? Absolutely. If they have radiation therapy, they still have tissue changes associated with that. They may still be having bone density loss. They may have cardiotoxicities related to that, right, um, right. to that radiation therapy. So it absolutely matters and it can change your plan of care. So our mindset as a profession is going to need to shift little bit more along that pathway, understanding that evidence base a little bit better, looking to these integrated models of care very differently. Um, because you're right, it hasn't been bad what we have done, right? It's just, it's been reactive. But that was how rehabilitation historically was structured. It was post-injury, post-operative care, like I said earlier. You know, you would have a problem, you would have an injury, you'd have a surgery, and the rehab consult would help you to get back and restore. Um, and with cancer care, we just have a different opportunity to use our knowledge and skills and abilities prospectively. So I'm not at all saying, you know, reactive rehabilitation referral based is, is bad. I just think in oncology, we have an opportunity to do it better, so much better by being on that forefront and being very, very proactive. 
And I do think, um, uh, sadly, uh, I think many patients are going to suffer more um, now with COVID because they can't get those supportive care services that they need. Um, I just saw a report today, literally, um, that was published that talked about um, screening for breast, colorectal, and lung cancers. Every cancer that we screen for, cervical cancer, all of them have plummeted. On average, 89% drop in referral rates since March of this year. So, yeah, so what does that mean? You know, you can say what you will about screening, right? There are some strong opinions about the benefits and the harms of screening. Um, but in general, it probably means that we are going to see individuals diagnosed at a later stage of disease. So what does screening do? It helps us with early identification. When we find a tumor earlier, we can treat it, we treat it more conservatively. Um, we don't necessarily need as robust systemic therapies to manage it. And so therefore, our patients have a better side effect profile. Many of them don't suffer as much toxicity and functional consequence. So what are we looking at in the next perhaps you know, nine to 18 months? More than likely, uh, an increase in the rate of advanced stage diagnoses, more than likely. Um, but you know, the people who are the naysayers of screening may show us and prove us all wrong if nothing changes drastically in 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 the uh, the stage uh, staging uh, you know the advanced stages uh, in stage of diagnosis incidents. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But um, that's another thing for us to be prepared for because that means individuals are going to come into a cancer diagnosis with more systemic burden of disease. They're going to require more intensive therapies. They're going to suffer more side effects, and they're only going to need rehabilitation services to a greater degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, again, all the more reason for us to be following these folks prospectively. So, uh, you know, I do see that as a, a downside of COVID, but a positive um, you know, for us to sort of get ourselves back into alignment in the oncology care continuum. Um, anecdotally, I have um, already had a physician colleague who has commented on the, the recommendations that were given at the beginning of when things were shutting down and saying, you know, it'll be okay if we, you know, hold off treatment and you do this uh, more conservative, you know, neoadjuvant treatment, pre, you know, beforehand until we can kind of get back into, you know, the OR and do surgeries, who for a small percentage, but meaningful fraction of this cohort have already had progression, um, you know, so absolutely, definitely going to be seeing more of that, uh, you know, that treatment, you know, aggressive treatment, more of the disease burden that these patients are experiencing, you know, and I, I would even say, um, you know, more acutely we'll be seeing this in, you know, the next, you know, year, year and a half and beyond. But I think in five to 10 years, we're going to be seeing things um, that maybe we haven't seen because of what's happening right now. And so, you know, even for, you know, unfortunately, looking that far ahead, if, you know, if you are a clinician that's not working in oncology, but going back to, we're going to see these patients in all treatment facilities and, you know, patient populations. So it's, you know, these are important things to consider all yeah, about that. Another, uh, another aspect of um, changes, uh, another aspect of change that we've seen uh, in cancer care delivery is around clinical trials in the COVID era. Okay. So, you know, with the clinical trial, we are doing usually some phase of drug development, drug testing, 
Um, and it's been incredibly problematic because clinical trials are typically run through tertiary, you know, larger academic medical centers, larger tertiary um, cancer care centers. Mm -hmm. And individuals are just having a tough time getting in for the visits. Either a cancer center has reduced um, the number of providers, cancer centers are not, um, you know, providing follow-up visits outside of those individuals who are receiving, you know, their cancer treatment. So a clinical trial may suffer with follow-up uh, or with follow-through or with management of side effects that a patient might be experiencing. So the National Cancer Institute, NCI, who you know, oversees a lot of these trials and supports and funds many of them, um, has is looking at different ways of administering clinical trials, taking some of the responsibility for clinical trial follow-up and monitoring to primary care providers, which I wow. think is fascinating. Yeah, it was really interesting. I had an opportunity to listen to a briefing by Ned Sharpless, who's the director of NCI right now, and they were talking about many of the changes that they're implementing with the, with how they run clinical trials. And I think to myself, wow, this could really be an opportunity, again, for this a better bridge with primary care, because that's a place where things sort of fall apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. Patient is going through treatment for cancer. They're being seen very intensively by a medical oncology uh, team, radiation oncologist, surgeon, people who are very knowledgeable. And then they follow up with their primary care provider beyond a certain period of time. And primary care providers in general, we know from research and surveys, are, um, are less, somewhat less knowledgeable about follow-up for cancer care, mm -hmm. side effects, management of these, um, you know, these impairment that individuals experience. And so I feel as though this is another place where there could be great opportunity um, if, in fact, the clinical trial follow-up shifts to the oncology community, how can we help, or to, I'm sorry, to the primary care community, mm -hmm. how can we help those primary care providers better understand these toxicities and these supportive care needs? How can we help them build community networks so that they can identify the PT clinic, um, the, you know, the, the, the nutritionist that they can get patients in, to interface with? in a primary care setting. And again, here, when I say primary care, I would say capital P because it isn't just physicians, it's primary care providers. Those are APPs, those are nurse practitioners, right? So how do we begin to build relationships there in the community so that we can engage with those patients in a better way? Um, and if we're seeing that shift from clinical trials, follow-up, distribution of drug, administration, toxicity monitoring, going out into primary care, there's an opportunity for us to leverage a developing knowledge base around then monitoring for long-term morbidity that could help to facilitate you know, the, the long-term follow-up with these individuals. So that's another place, again, longer term, that I do mm -hmm. see some of the change from COVID could potentially benefit better integration of rehab services for these folks who are long-term cancer survivors. You know, we often talk about people who are going through cancer treatments, but then you've got folks who are seven, eight, 10 years out from treatment, and um, you know, they still struggle with their blood counts. They still have issues with you know, clinical fatigue, neuropathies, falls, we know that. Even three to four years post-completion of treatment. Gosh, Carrie Winter's Stone article, I think, said those individuals were an average of six years after the completion of treatment. 
with neurotoxic agents and they had measurable gait deficits, measurable balance deficits, so clinically measurable deficits, and they reported higher rates of falls. So, you know, the more that we've, we've got to think about integrating our services really for the oncology patient. So that's from diagnosis through treatment um, all the way really for the remainder of the lifespan. You know, I tell my patients, I never discharge you, right? I'm always here in the backcourt if you need me and we can put on the full press if you ever have a problem, right? So I think that type of mentality is more of a chronic care model that we have to get our mindset into. And that's another systemic shift that I think we in physical therapy could really benefit from mm -hmm. having more of a chronic care management mindset rather than an episodic care mindset. And that could be a whole podcast episode in itself. <laughs> well, I go, I delved into that a little bit in my Mally lecture, which is, you yes. know, is now open access and available. Um, but I did, I feel like the prospective surveillance model in cancer, seeing a patient at diagnosis, knowing what their risk for side effects are, mm -hmm. following them prospectively. It, it, it's the same model that we could translate to someone who is pre-diabetic. Right, we we identify and we diagnose people as pre-diabetic, so that's a perfect time to intercede with a rehabilitation provider, follow that individual prospectively. Mm -hmm. Right, we know the markers for somebody gaining weight, moving towards becoming morbidly obese. Why do we not follow those individuals using rehab services prospectively? Because diabetes and obesity. Uh, much of that is physiological and physiologically driven. There's a huge psychosocial component to that, mm -hmm. right? It impacts physical function. It impacts social roles and participation. I mean, all of that. There's so much there around chronic care, chronic disease management, very similar to cancer. Um, and so a model that could work, that works in oncology could work in these other, uh, translating this into other chronic disease states. But we as a profession, we have to get our mindset there. Systemic shift. I like I, that. Again, systemic shift. Yes. Paradigm shift. Paradigm's so overused, right? We've, it's become one of those buzzwords. I'm going to start talking about systemic, systemic shift. Systemic shift. Boom. In our healthcare system, our systemic shift in our system is going to look like this. <laughs> so any last words you would like to leave listeners with today, Nicole? Oh, there's lots of them. Gosh, we've talked about <laughs> we've talked about so much. I know so much great stuff. Um, I think at you know at the end of the day, we have to um, we have to realize how much we bring to the oncology care continuum. How much we bring to the patient. Um, we really do have a specialized skill set. We also have special eyes. We see things very differently than anyone else on that medical team. We put our hands on patients. We spend more time with them than mm -hmm. almost anyone else on that medical team. And so the more that we're able to demonstrate our value in providing care to patients who have cancer, I, I think it really serves us well, not just from integrating our services, but also just in becoming part of that cancer care team really demonstrating the, satis the patient satisfaction will be better, demonstrating our value to those patients. So don't ever doubt that you have the opportunity with the appropriate education and knowledge in oncology 
and the skills that you have right now as a rehab provider can be brought to bear to really benefit this patient population. You know, don't ever doubt that you know you can make a significant difference in the lives of these individuals. You know, I I was I, I, I took a step into the oncology world almost 22 years ago now. And I didn't know anything about cancer. And you know what, you may be listening to this right now and thinking this is a really interesting topic, but I don't know anything about cancer. Mm -hmm. The good news is there are so many ways that you can educate yourself about the disease, right? You have the knowledge and skills of a physical therapist or a rehab provider right now to bring to bear. You are an excellent problem solver, right? That's what we do. We're like the mechanics of the body. There's the problem. We can figure it out. We can solve. If you can solve the problem and you know about cancer care and, and, and oncology, you can make a tremendous difference in these individuals' lives. So don't say, well, I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have an I don't know. I don't know. If this is something interesting to you, find a way to get the knowledge in oncology because you have the skills as a rehab provider to bring a lot to bear. Ah, oh, and one more thing before I forget to uh, mention this for listeners. So a few weeks-ish ago, time is irrelevant these days. A few mm -hmm. weeks ago, um, Survivorship Solutions launched their course. And if you want more goodness from mm -hmm. Nicole Stout and tons of other people, um, mm -hmm. they're in this course. They're teaching this course. So... I will, I will again include, uh, so I'll include the links to the Survivorship Solutions Core Competencies course. I will include a link to the Mali lecture um, that is now open access. If you haven't watched it yet, even if you're not in oncology, this is a phenomenal lecture that I think everyone needs to watch. And um, thankfully, you know, I think it was already going to be open access because I definitely saw a little bit of an uproar on Twitter before it like became published. And there was almost a riot amongst like yeah. the Twitter community, which was really fun to watch actually. So, so uh, yeah. So, so the Mali lecture is really about clinical innovation. So I hope that anyone, even if you're not interested in cancer, would listen to that and say, um, wow, this gives me different insight on how I can treat my patients. Even if you don't ever treat an individual with cancer ever again, uh, or ever in your career, that's okay. I think there's, there's mm -hmm. some good girls in there and I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, so with Survivorship Solutions, I did um, a, a more extended, oh, expansive talk on guidelines. So if you want more of those pearls and you want to be able to find yes. the guidelines, that's in there. Um, we also talked about payment, and we didn't really touch on that here, but it's a part of the Survivorship Solutions course, and I think it is critical. You can get paid for these services, for prehab, um, for prospective surveillance, absolutely. Even if you are in an acute rehab facility, everybody gets nervous about this Medicare 6040, the DRG categories. There are a lot of opportunities there um, for payment in acute services. We talk about MIPS and some of the incentives that are there um, to help uh, to help you get financial incentives around functional assessment in the oncology population. Um, and of course, I have a talk about prospective surveillance. Um, I also I have a different set of courses with MedBridge. Um, okay. So you're in a lot of a lot of people, their company, your company may have a contract with MedBridge. Um, so that's a little bit more sort of core um, cancer treatment. So we talk about hormonal therapies and side effects and impact on function. We talk about chemotherapy 
uh, and the different side effects and the impact on function. We go through some case studies, and then I also talk about exercise prescription in the MedBridge courses. So yeah, there's there's lots of great places um, that um, I, I like to I like to sprinkle around, um, and I, I with those really good quality programs like Survivorship Solutions and MedBridge. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, of course. No, I definitely have been working my way through it. And I thought, oh, and I went through, you know, the list of people and I thought, oh, look who's here. So exciting. The, the nice thing about Survivorship Solutions, and I, I will plug them and I'll, I'll say that I, I do, obviously, I do educational programs for them. So right. <laughs> well, just in full disclosure. But the really nice thing about their program is they, they, they're not just trying to sprinkle the knowledge out there and say, hey, here's what you need. Go, go figure it out. Um, they're really all about coming in and helping you assess your program. What do you have in place? Where are your gaps? And how can they help you fill that? Um, and, and from an administrative perspective, from a clinical perspective, from a workforce perspective. So they really are about helping you develop a comprehensive program. Um, so I'll stop there because now it sounds like a commercial pitch, but <laughs> um, and they, they, and they're unique that way. So it is mm -hmm. the education, but it's also the, the administrative component as well. So Great. Oh my gosh. Nicole, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. This is something that I personally have been looking forward to a while. I have had audience members, listeners who have reached out and said, Hey, when are you getting Nicole on? So guess what? It's here. And I am so, so grateful um, that you took time out of your day to come on and spend time with me and my listeners. So thank you thank so much. You. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so, uh, you know, I'll go anywhere to talk about cancer and cancer rehab. Um, but I do want to take a moment and just give a shout out to our newly certified clinical specialist in oncology. Oh, we have a new, yep, a new group that just came through this year and, um, you know, applications are coming in now for next year's exam. So Think about ways in developing your career. If you're working with individuals who have cancer now, if you're spending at least 50% of your time in that world, think about taking the steps to study for and to sit for this exam. You can do it. Yes. You can absolutely do it. Um, you have the knowledge and skills. And if you want to develop those, there are residency programs developing around the country as we speak. Uh, and there are a number of different great continuing education programs that you can build that knowledge base to really get yourself ready to sit for that exam. So shout out to them and um, you know, to our new medical specialists. I'm so, so proud of them and so proud of that program. So fantastic. And thank you, Elise, for everything that you are doing to coalesce this community. You really are amazing in bringing folks together, leading with conversations like this. So I'm grateful for you and what you're doing. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I might cry. No big deal. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Onco PT podcast. For more episodes, visit theoncopt.com. 